Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and I am stoked. This is the this is a really big deal. This episode, at least for us, because uh, this episode kind of is a culmination of the efforts. It's kind of a, a, a milestone, if you will, in that this is episode sixty. Now, normally, I know that most people make a big deal out of like episode fifty. But here at the Art of War Gaming, we are absolute nerds, and the number 60 is, is pretty darn cool. So I'm going to explain that in just a second. But before I get to that, 10,000. We have 10,000 downloads, which it's insane to me. That's, that's a massive number that <laughs> I am so glad that we reached. So thank you to everyone for uh, tuning in and being a part of the conversation. Uh, we really appreciate it. We really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, yeah, it, it feels fulfilling in a way. It's very nice. So, episode sixty, besides being you know a nice number to have reached, is a very important number to mathematicians. Base sixty is a really cool number. So, uh, just a couple of things about it. Of course, uh, we we know it popularly from like Sumeria or Babylon, who famously used base sixty systems. But it was also used in China and in other places. It's a very good system for fractions, uh, for advanced calculations, uh, time, and for uh, astrology and astronomy. So, base sixty. It contains three prime numbers: two, three, and five. Prime numbers are a big deal to mathematicians. It's nice to have prime numbers in any sort of data set. So uh, 3, 2, and 5 are very important. There's 12 factors to base 60. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30, and 60. And they all divide evenly into 60. 60 is the lowest number divisible by the numbers 1 through 6. Now, all of this may sound very complicated to folks who don't necessarily know math. So I'm not going to go into any like really deep detail here, but only to tell you that it's really not that complicated because you use it every single day. There's 12 months to a year and there's 60 minutes to an hour and 60 seconds to a minute. 24 hours is two sets of 12. And I mean, I can go on and on and on, but basically you already know base 60. You just apply it in a different way. So again, really cool number. Happy to have reached it. Like, yay Art of Wargaming. Yay you. Just yay. Yeah, that's the... <laughs> that's kind of my, my point there. 
So those of you who are on the Facebook and Instagram may have noticed that we have been featuring a particular woman in a lot of our memes. Like she, she's been showing up quite a bit. Uh, in fact, one of our most popular memes is one with her. Uh, that is Arshank. If you, if you don't recognize her from the episode pick, she was in uh, the latter half of, of Ebony and Wolf and her and Tandar were speaking about Vorshan. It just turns out that she is like the most memeable person that I've met just between her body language and her facial expressions. Meme gold. She is meme gold. So you are likely to see more Arshank memes and it's because she's fantastic and we love her. And she makes really good memes. So that's, that's what all that is. Um, and if you aren't on the Facebook or Instagram, I would say check it out to see awesome pictures of Arshank. So before we get into this episode, like really dig into it, I recently got the, and I'm going to screw up this pronunciation because it's right here in front of me, but it's Archaeopter, uh, the uh, AdMech flyer. And I was sitting there debating how to build it. And, and sometimes I go online and look at what other people are doing with the meta, but often I try to just sit down and imagine it in different situations and try to figure out what is going to be the most useful overall. And so what I had decided on the Archaeopter was to go with the Fuselav, which is the bomber version. And, you know, it, at first it looks a little bit weaker than the other ones. It's not a heavy trans or not a, a transport at all. And it's not the really cool jet fighter type with the very high damage weapons. It has a very consistent bomb load that it can drop, but that's the word. That's the word consistent because everything tracks. So as the, like the jet plane version tracks, it's going to get worse and worse and worse at shooting. But when the bomber tracks, the bombs stay the same. It's a four up everything you pass over four up. So that's a big deal to me because often like when I see flyers, I'll just, you know, track them once or twice maybe and not worry about finishing them off because they're useless at that point. You know, they, they maybe hit something every now and then, but you know, most flyers don't really work well and they start to get into the lower tiers. The bomber I think will be better in that respect. If you have thoughts on that, if that's something you agree with, disagree with, let me know. I'd love to talk about the, the logic behind the choices. So we're about to dig in to what is war, which is the first section of on war. And I was intending on doing all of this section, all of what is war in one episode, but I'm going to have to break it down into two or three episodes because this is high level stuff. It's, it's very, there's so much information within one paragraph. There is so much information written in it that you have to read it slowly once or twice more than you normally would just to really grasp what's going on. You know, this is, this is like calculus for military science. This is really high level stuff. And Clausewitz is trying to express a lot of information in a small amount of space, which is impressive considering the size of the book. Yeah. So I, I, I'm really, really into this book. I don't know if I've made that clear, but this, this book is up there with Sun Tzu, where Sun Tzu has those broad strokes, those, those general ideas that apply to most situations. Clausewitz 
goes into the nitty-gritty of every situation and just beats the logic out of it. I love it. So, that's what we're getting into. This is the nerdy of me that you're going to see. I've loved all the material that we've covered. Don't get me wrong. I love reading this stuff. But this book in particular is a delight. So, without further ado, I present you with our first section of What is War? The Three Reciprocals. For section one today, we're going to be looking at What is War? Parts one through nine. And I'm titling this section The Three Reciprocals because everything within these nine uh, first sections kind of match this three reciprocal idea that he introduces within this. And I really like these three reciprocals. I think that they're a good way uh, to kind of look at conflict and to consider the evolution of the battlefield. So first off, what is war? Clausewitz says that war is an act of violence intended to compel our opponent to fulfill our will. Now, within wargaming, that's to win. That's what we're going for, is to actually beat the opponent and make them not be able to play no more. That's our will at that particular moment. By the way, I'm sorry if you're hearing weird noises in the background. There's a sprinkler system that's going off at this hour for whatever reason. So if you're hearing weird noises, that's what's going on. But so in wargaming, our will obviously is to win, to beat the match that we're in or win the game type that we're doing. Whatever it is, that's our will. That's what we're going towards. Within military history, the will could be any number of things. It could be to submit to an empire. It could be to, to take away their ability to wage war. There's a lot of different reasons, a lot of different wills within history that fit this idea. But for the purposes of wargaming, our will is pretty well defined. And of course, there's the will to learn. There's the will to enjoy oneself. So uh, the quote-unquote violence that we are committing, or sometimes real violence that we're committing, is also toward those aims as well. So whatever our goals are, that is what war is for. So these three reciprocals are things that appear in just I mean, every conflict, basically. And they are important for understanding basically the next move that our opponent is going to make and how we need to react and build to be relevant, to stay relevant on the field or, or in our matches. So the first reciprocal is that war is violence pushed towards the extremes. And that means that it ever marches towards the extreme. It may not start at the extreme, but war is violence, and it is already on a, on a massive scale. It's, we're usually not talking about groups of, of 10 or, or 15 people, unless it was the Icelandic sagas, I stand corrected. But in most cases, you have these large forces that are assembled under one name or another, and that's already extreme. You already have these large numbers, and that is already an extreme. And then when you count in uh, the military technology, that one can throw into it, the allies that come towards it, like it's always, always pressing onward. One is always seeking to, to kind of push that line. And so to illustrate that point, 
one of the things that Clausewitz says is that one cannot stop short of an extreme because one that does is obviously at a disadvantage. If your opponent is willing to go past that extreme, but the per, but I'm not, that means that I'm already at a disadvantage. And there is something to be said about unsparing force because you, you can't necessarily, war is, like, war is violence. War is the attempt to win. And so when I see on the field of battle, for instance, that you know, people aren't necessarily performing their best because there's noobs on the field or whatever that case may be. It, it kind of ticks me off in a way. One, it's, it's bad learning, in my opinion, because those folks are going to learn to fight against you at that level. And then that's not necessarily a realistic level. They go to a large event or to a large tournament and they get their, their booties kicked <laughs> uh, because, you know, they, they're not up to snuff. When, when we were coming up here in Stygia, there were no shots pulled. The, the folks here went rough and tumble. And now in hindsight, you know, I was 15 year olds, they may have wanted to pull some shots, but it helped me become much better. Uh, you heard Theon when he was on a few episodes ago, he also said the same thing. When you're around high level folks, it pushes you to another level. It, it brings you up. And so this unsparing force not just benefits in that way, but it's a matter of making sure that victory is achieved, not doing it half, you know, putting it in half effort. And so this unsparing force, those who are willing to go to that level, again, are going to have a, a an advantage. Yeah, that's just the point of it. And stopping short, maybe don't, we don't start at the extreme, like I said. But stopping short of it is not really an option. Now, when we're talking about this, there are obviously inner laws that need to be obeyed. There are codes of ethics, there are cultural norms, there are, uh, you know, internal politics to be considered. And we're talking about actual military history here. Uh, for instance, you know, a more quote unquote civilized country might really frown upon certain acts that they deem a war crime. Whereas other countries, not having that same set of inner laws may not stop short of that. And it's kind of the same thing here. I don't necessarily go easy on new people, whether it's uh, in any sort of wargaming. Ask my sister. She didn't beat me in chess until she was like 12 because I refused to go easy on her. And, and she hated it, but she kept coming back and then she got really good at it. And so, yeah, these inner laws... You don't have to be mean about it. Again, if, if I'm on the field and I'm maneuvering against someone, I'm not going to definitely play down. I'm, I'm going to make sure they're deadified. But in the same token, I don't necessarily need to hit as hard as I can on the assumption that, you know, that light hit is still going to be taken. So just pull the shot slightly. Now, I mean, if they, if they call light, then it's game on. But, but yeah, so these inner laws are what we have to obey. Nothing else. Starting, stopping short of any other extreme for any other reason, but inner laws is not good. Same again with Warhammer 40k or any other sort of uh, large tabletop game like that. It might tempt to go easy on someone. You know, I've, I've definitely had games where you're, the other side is losing at such a disadvantage that you have the temptation to back off a little bit. The temptation 
to, to not play as well as I possibly could. And that temptation is bad. Teach them? Absolutely. Let them know what you're doing to beat them, help them become a better player. Absolutely. Pull those punches? Absolutely not. Because that can and will backfire in a lot of situations. Uh, case in point, I had a game uh, fairly recently where I was on the back foot, where I was definitely in a position of weakness. And then my opponent seemed to spare me, seemed to kind of readjust and go somewhere else uh, with the intent of being nice. And I came back and beat them. If they would have just crushed me right then and there, I wouldn't have had that capability. But their inner laws dictated, and my inner laws are different. So, something to think about. Another point under this first reciprocal is that gradual conflict escalation is required to avoid unnecessary waste of resources. Which makes sense. You don't want to throw everything you have at a problem because it, it takes a while to kind of get that stuff together, and that's a big risk. However, there are three situations in which we could possibly uh, justify throwing all of our effort into the one action. One, it is an isolated act with no history. Now, one might think that this is true of a, a, a physical wargaming field or a, or a board, but it really isn't. Because every game that I have played against an opponent counts as history. Every game that I've played against a certain faction or a certain play style counts as history. Every time I take to the field of battle, every unit I go against, every realm, every person, there's history there. And so in these cases, one probably doesn't want to waste all of your resources, basically show all your tricks because we're coming back to it. It's not like, you know, you wipe somebody out on a Warhammer or at physical wargaming and they don't come back. No, they do come back and they've learned, they learned what all your tricks are if we do not use appropriate levels and not just reveal everything. So isolated act with no history. We don't have that going on. What's the next one? Limited to a single solution. As in this particular act is going to solve the entire problem. And this kind of ties into the third possibility, which is that solution is perfect and complete. Nothing in this world is perfect and complete. And to my knowledge, nothing has a single solution. There's always multiple factors to be considered, always a lot of different ways to approach a, a solution. So basically what Clausewitz is saying is that you want to do the gradual conflict escalation. And that's, that's just a good idea. So in, in terms of physical wargaming, that means not just sprinting at the opponent immediately out the gate. Now, uh, there's some who will argue with me, who say that a, a barbarian charge at the beginning is effective. And I would argue with that. It's an unnecessary waste of resources. Why do that when we can be more conservative, when we can expend energy and resources as they are needed, rather than just throwing them at something? So 
I am absolutely about this, you know, feeling out the field, feeling out where the violence is, kind of maneuvering against your enemies and gradually escalating it until, you know, absolute violence breaks out. But hopefully we are in a favorable position when that occurs. Another point underneath this first reciprocal is that, well, this one's actually kind of funny. Klauswitz takes my job. He basically takes my catchphrase here because he picks a fight with a dead guy. Right? Klauswitz. That's copyrighted, don't you know? But the point that he's picking a fight with is that a commander dedicated to winning without fighting is at a disadvantage. And I mean, that's kind of, I don't even know how that's possible <laughs> in, the, in the games that we play, whether it's physical or mental wargaming. But I guess trying to outmaneuver your opponent and just achieve without fighting or I don't know. But you're, he says you're at a disadvantage because, as we said before, if you're stopping short of an extreme or if we are not using unsparing force, then we are absolutely a disadvantage. And so, you know, Clausewitz says if we're coming into a war with the intent of winning without fighting, well, that means that, that we've already kind of lost a few steps, right? Which I kind of agree with. I mean, I like Sun Tzu, very broad strokes. And I think that Sun Tzu meant that before a war starts, you want to try to defeat them through politics or whatever the case may be. But the point, the point still remains. You don't, we don't want to approach the board without the intent of winning. Now it's my turn to pick a fight with Clausewitz because one of the points he had for this section was that civilized countries, namely European countries, uh, their social conditioning kept war more civil. It improved the conduct in their wars. And I don't know. He didn't live until the 20th century and see some of the... Whew, I mean, studying war in the 20th century, there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot there to study. It was a busy century. And I think he may have changed his stance <laughs> on this particular... Uh, point, if he was here to observe it. And not to say that war wasn't absolutely atrocious back then. You know, again, they had cannons that were tearing off limbs. You had, uh, you know, the, the rifles, the muskets that they were using weren't great for the mean, the, like they rarely went straight through the body. They did a lot of concussive damage because they weren't, they didn't spiral through like a, a bullet does. You just had this ball flying into you. But the worst part is that, again, they don't go straight through, which means you have a little ball, possibly with a little piece of paper that's traveled through the air, now stuck inside in a place where there's no antiseptics and no anesthetics. <laughs> yeah, it was not a good time. And then, of course, there's the disease factor. The fact that in most of these wars we're studying, far more people died off the battlefield than on the battlefield from infections, from cholera, from a lot of different things. So that's, that's just kind of my point in, in history speaking, I kind of, I, I had issue with this particular <laughs> statement. The last thing we're going to say on the first reciprocal is that the progression of military arts, technology, and science aim at the utmost destruction of our foes. And again, if we look at the 20th century, that absolutely proves true. But it's, it's dedicating all of ourselves 
to that. And to me, that means trying to apply things from different places to what we know. You know, for instance, there's the uh, math. If you're really good at math, that absolutely has a place in wargaming of all types. You can do a lot with mathematics. Dance. One wouldn't necessarily think of dance as a combat art, but you combine that with other types of footwork, and that can be very effective. You know, there's a lot of different tools. There's a lot of different skills that can be pulled into wargaming. And that's kind of the idea here, I think. And so we're looking for arts, we're looking for technology, and of course, we're looking for the military science to get better. To look across the table and crush our opponent. To look across the field and crush our opponent. The utmost destruction. So, first reciprocal, violence is pushed towards its extremes in war. The second reciprocal is that as long as my enemy is undefeated, they may defeat me. We already touched on this a little bit, but it's a good point. And it's, it kind of ties into this unsparing force idea. You know, if we go in and we just kind of uh, hobble our enemy, but we don't necessarily take the bite out of our enemy, they can absolutely come back <laughs> as a, it's, it's classic. So how do we, how do we think about this? How do we really study this second reciprocal? Well, first off, we know that neither opponent is an abstract to the other. We're not talking about pen and paper here. We're not talking about an idea. I can study my opponent. My opponent is a flesh and blood person who has a history, who has patterns. So instead of looking at my opponent on paper, one must go and observe one's opponent. And when we're observing, we're thinking about things like, what will be is predictable by what is. It's not the case in every single situation. Sometimes, sometimes people have pulled out surprises. But in most cases, what will be is dictated by what is. Somebody's style, somebody's pattern feeds into it. They may be getting better, they may be improving that, but it is what it is. And it's good to know. And this comes again from studying one's opponent. Of course, he agrees with every other military scientist we've talked to here. And one of the things he's talking about is, again, we're not, it's not about theory in this particular case. If theory doesn't fit reality, then theory is useless. So abstracts here, we got to get away from that. We got to get away from abstracts. So we're looking at how do we predict what is and what will be, right? And our opinions therefore, should be based upon what our opponent does, but not what they should do. Looking across the field and thinking, this is what I would do, or this would be a good solution to this problem, you know, that doesn't matter. That's theory. What we're looking at is, what does the opponent do in those situations? And again, that takes studying. That takes looking at your opponent's drill, at the way they practice, at what faction they use or what team they fight with. But again, they're not an abstract. This is something we can absolutely do. And if we're not doing it firsthand, we can certainly ask around and figure stuff out. If people are winning tournaments, then it's easy to study what they do because it's fairly well documented. Same thing at, at, at any of the wargaming. So that's, that's good stuff to study. The meta is good to know what is working, not what, what should work. 
And in all of this, deficiencies are a modifying principle. It is very good to note where one's opponent is less than perfect, where there's a hole in their strategy, because that plays into everything else. Maybe what they do depends on that deficiency. They have a lack of troops. They have a lack of proper training. That deficiency modifies what they're going to do. What will be modified also by deficiencies. Do, do they have proper gear? Are we getting hydrated well enough? Uh, does somebody have a bum knee? So all these things play into this second reciprocal. As long as my enemy is undefeated, they may defeat me. Our third reciprocal is both sides seek to improve the sum of available means and strength of will. That's a lot of words. So let's break it down. Sum of available means. What we're talking about here is foot troops, cavalry, elites, equipment, weapons, and supply. And this is true of all sorts of wargaming. You know, if I'm looking across the field and I'm seeing folks that are fairly shield heavy, but they don't have a whole lot of pole arms, maybe not a whole lot of flankers, that absolutely is plays into this sum of available means. You know, a bunch of heavily armored, uh, heavily kitted folks are not likely doing, to be doing a whole lot of flanking. So that's something they lack, traded for something that they have. If we're looking across the field and we see a whole lot of flankers, that is definitely something to consider, as is also the lack of a strong center. And that's another good point. Do they have armor? Do they have projectiles? So this is all factoring into the sum of the means, or sum of available means, for physical wargaming. If we're looking at something more intellectual, if we're looking at Warhammer, then the sum of available means is really all these things. How many troops, you know, just straight up troops do they have to either occupy objectives or to work as screens? That's important to know. How many cavalry or fast attack do they have? Do we really need to protect our flanks? Are we going to have a bunch of deep strikers coming in? There's, yeah, cavalry is a good thing to note. And then, of course, the elites. Where are the heavy punchers? Are we seeing some, some Terminators rolling up here? Or something of the sort? You know, something heavy, something stocky, or even something that just hits really hard. There's a lot of models I can think of like that where you just really don't want to be hit by them. They're not necessarily tough, but they hit like a brick. And then, of course, the equipment. What are we looking at over there? Are all those gene stealers carrying uh, bombs? Something to note. Do they have long-range capability? Are they good for melee capability? All part of the sum of the means. And then, in terms of supply, that applies more to physical wargaming, I would imagine. And that's, you know, are they getting proper sleep? Are they drinking water? Are they eating properly? Supply is important. And we've discussed that before. The strength of will, however, is morale. How is everybody doing? How, uh, you know, is there, is there heart in the fight? Are they there? Are they having a good time? Are you there? Are you having a good time? And then there's motives. What are our motives in this? Are we seeking to become the best that we can? Are we seeking simply to stay alive? Are we trying to impress somebody? Are we trying to prove a point? All of our motives feed into this. And they really should be improved, right? 
We should be aiming for things that are not only reasonable and attainable, but also beneficial to everything that we're trying to accomplish, which often means to our, our allies as well. Then there's the fighting spirit. Do they have the fight in them? Are they going into battle with the intent, not just to win, but like having that... I mean, if you have it, if you know the fighting spirit that I'm talking about, it's just this burning sensation within you. It's this willingness to wade into the violence and rejoice in it. I rejoice when I'm playing Warhammer 40k and there's this battle of the minds taking place. It's so much fun. Or on the field, when you have two people or groups of people who are engaging in consensual violence and... Oh, it's just the best high in the world, I swear. It, it absolutely is. So, fighting spirit, also important to the strength of will. And then resolution. Are we there to get the job done? Because I've seen people who were, you know, supposed to be stars of their team, but their heart wasn't in it. And so fairly early on in the day, they'll scrub out or they, they won't do as well in their tournaments as they are expected to do because they don't have the resolution. The heart's not in it. That And on the other side, I've seen people who aren't that experienced and maybe aren't that recognized come out and do amazing things because of that resolution. So this is important. It's, it's not just an idea to, I don't know, to die with honor. I mean, that's one thing too. Like I always make my opponent kill me. Like I'm, I'm not just taking a limb and calling dead. I'm not just going to have half of my army decimated and throw in the towel. That's not my way because I'm resolved to fight to the very last. And I hope you are too. Cause again, the strength of will is important because wars are not won instantly. You have an economy of force, an economy of effort. You know, when we're doing field fighting, if we completely blow out all of our energy on the first day, then we have, we have expended our economy of force. We haven't, we haven't done the economy of force. We've just blown right past it straight to the extreme. So the economy of force, economy of effort means doing just enough to stay ahead, putting in just enough effort dedicating just enough resources to overcome our enemy because there's other fields there's other places to fight even on the warhammer board even if i'm using a melee army there has to be an economy of force there has to be different concentrations in different places you're trying to achieve something besides just a blind rush at your opponent one of the most ridiculous games i ever had was against world eaters and it was just this solid wall that sprinted across the board at me. And I play Admech primarily. And so I just shot them off the board. There was no real strategy behind it. It was just spread out and sprinting at me. Now, if it would have been dedicated, if that economy of force has been put into a big ball of hatred and it hit one section of my line and then rolled up the rest, yeah, that would have been a different story. But that, that, there was no economy. It was just spread out everywhere, maxed out to the extreme. And I did exactly what I needed to do. No more, no less to win. 
And so no matter what we're doing, whether it's physical or intellectual wargaming, proportionate effort is required. Uh, with a Warhammer tournament, even, we're going to be on our feet for a long time. Those are not over quickly. And there's a lot of concentration that is involved. And so if, if we burn out on our first or second game, well, then if we're actually moving on, the performance drops because we haven't used that economy of effort. We've just expended everything we have. So pacing ourselves is important. And we have to remember that while allies are awesome, allies are also not always dependable. And they usually don't truly emerge until into our war, until into our battle. And this, this really makes more sense when we're talking about physical wargaming. And I'm thinking about the large multi-team fights and originally, there's not necessarily allies. Everybody's kind of against each other, and uh, you know it's just kind of mayhem. But as that game evolves, as people continue to play more and more and more, if a disproportionate vict like victory ratio is going to one team or one side, well, that's when people start being like, hey, truce until we go against these guys. Yeah, okay. And then you have these allies that come together in order to balance the battle. But allies are usually not forthcoming, and we can't always depend on them. So, well, we should always seek to improve, but not count completely upon them. So to recap on what we've been talking about here, the first reciprocal, war is violence pushed towards the extremes. Second reciprocal, as long as my enemy is undefeated, they may defeat me. And the third reciprocal, both sides seek to improve the sum of available means and strength of will. And these apply everywhere. I haven't seen a single war game or a single point in military history that these reciprocals do not apply to. So they're good to learn and they're good to kind of meditate or reflect on. So if you're following along with at home, this is a really good idea. And the last thing we're going to touch on before we get on to our interview with Real is the result in war is never absolute. And this goes back to that idea of, you know, war is an isolated act with no history, limited to a single solution, single solution is perfect and complete, and how that is impossible with what we do, and really with history itself. That's an abstract that doesn't exist in reality. But the result in war is never absolute. Just because we're good against one particular faction or one particular player does not mean that that's going to stay that way. Just because we can fight against a particular person and win or do well against a particular team does not mean that that is going to be the way for the rest of forever. And so resting on one's laurels, expecting, oh, I'll always be able to beat that person, well, then we're missing out on those reciprocals. We're not acknowledging that that person is not remaining stagnant. We're not talking about an abstract. We're talking about someone who is seeking to improve, to defeat us. Therefore, we must also seek to improve, to be able to defeat all of them. So, I really like this idea. I hope you did too. And now we're going to move on to our interview with Real.
with me today to talk about some of these themes that we discussed in part one, in particular those three reciprocals that you heard me nerding out about, is uh, a good friend of mine, Real Greybird. Now before, before I, I let him speak, let me just say that I've known this guy a long time. He has always been an upstanding individual, a absolute joy to have in the community, I have no doubt that he gives back to his realm as well. And uh, I'm just stoked to have him here for the big episode 60. Real, how are you doing? I'm doing well, especially after that introduction, goodness. <laughs> well, it was all deserved, sir. Um, so how, how about you uh, give the listeners your Warhead Gaming pedigree? Um, well, uh, mine really started with um, Balagarth, ultimately. Um, I was doing social work in 2012. Um, actually, no, actually, before that, um, when I was in college, uh, a friend of a friend really came over um, into um, a room that we were hanging out in and asked if we wanted to go uh, hit each other with swords. And I immediately <laughs> said yes. Uh, my friend looked at both of us and said no and uh, shook his head. So I went and... Uh, as most people um, <laughs> with their first experience uh, got to play around for a couple of months with uh, an old eight foot of felon glaive and the uh, other red being a schedule 40 PVC pipe wrapped in a electrical blanket that hadn't had the wire taken out yet. Oh, um, and uh, I thought it was great. It was the, one of the most fun things I've done in my life. Um, and so we kept doing it. And uh, when I moved um, away from college, I was doing social work and came across um, the Wrath Realm that I'm a part of currently um, out in uh, Julia Davis where we practiced and uh, went, I recognize some of these people and what's going on. Um, it was about two weeks prior to chaos. And so when they came back, I started coming and I've been fighting since. So I guess this will be my ninth year, even counting COVID. Well, outstanding. Uh, otherwise, um, I got into the wargaming side, like the tabletop side of stuff, um, through a very chance conversation I was having with uh, my friends Hakan and Par on the way back from, I think it was a Thaw Brawl. Um, I just, I don't know why I even brought it up. I just asked about 40K or Space Marines or something to that extent. Um, and Hakan and Dane... Uh, kind of filled me in on kind of what was going on. I thought it was neat. And like two days later, uh, Dane reached out to myself and Z and a bunch of other people saying, hey, I want to start 40K. And I end up loving the Space Locus. So. Well, it's hard not to. <laughs> both both of these games are a lot of fun. And in your nine years of Belagarth, uh, you've, you've, uh, you've had a pretty good uh, career with one particular unit. Uh, yeah, uh, one and only. Um, I started pledging with Brotherhood of the Falcon. Um, uh, Park could correct me, Sh uh, Shiro could correct me as well if I'm wrong, um, but I think it was th that year, I want to say it was probably in August of 2012. Um, I was one of, if not the first Western pledge that wasn't part of the initial like Western push. Uh, was my understanding, and um, yeah, I've been with them, well, I guess it was 12, but then I got Sash, I think in, I believe it was 13, so 
uh, it's been at least seven, if not eight years with them as well. And they're a, a pretty solid unit to, to work with. They've got that history. They've got a really solid uh, foundation and structure, and they typically bring in some pretty good blood. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, a lot of real good fighters, good people. Really, um, there are very few uh, individuals um, outside of Brotherhood that I've that I've met that I would rather sit around a fire with. And and a couple that I that I have met out um, are most tend to be cousins like yourself. So it it's definitely done a lot to provide um, a really good environment for me. Um, and a good kind of baseline to, to have uh, my fighting career start. Oh, right on. Yeah, and like I said, they're, they're a quality group, and I, and I dig it. And uh, it's funny that you are in Wrath and your Brotherhood, because we had an episode on Wrath and the Brotherhood, so you're kind of the whole, the whole package there, aren't <laughs> you? are the conglomeration. That's right. So before we get into these, uh, especially these three reciprocals, which again, I'm just an absolute geek over, I did want to ask, I've, I've just got into the Gene Steeler cult, as our listeners know, yeah. and I'm still working on building my army, but in terms of like tactics and strategy, this is a complete anathema to me. I, I've played, you know, shoot them from a distance armies. I've played get up in their grill armies that are like, like super thick, like the Death Guard, but how how do I make Gene Steeler cult work? Who uh, Gene Steeler cults are a lot of fun. Um, the, the premise behind them is is really cool. Um, when they first talked about the lore, uh, like them bringing being brought in at the very end of seventh edition, I was immediately enamored by them. Um, they are definitely one of the trickiest things out there, if not the trickiest. Um, but they're just a lot of fun to play. You can really play in a really myriad of ways. Um, the, um, despite the fact that the gene stealers themselves being elite units and also not being cultists don't um, benefit from the cult creeds, um, the gene stealers in running like an elite list with like abomin abominance and such um, uh, backed up with uh, Primarchs and um, Biophagus for the aberrants especially um, have uh, proven to be uh, even with the point nerfs uh, recently really really effective uh, in dealing hmm. with um, heavy army blocks uh, heavy armor blocks um, I, I feel the couple of a couple of the many uh, reports that I've watched the couple of games that I've played with it um, I feel that I and others really don't use the um, the cult ambush uh, when you're first setting up your pips hmm. um, and the ability to pull units back to move them around to set the decoys. I don't feel that enough CP, despite how hungry the army is for it, is utilized as readily in the um, opening um, reveal just because the positioning powers you have um, regardless of whether you're going first or second, are so incredibly strong. And, you know, positioning in this game is is the only thing that's stronger than it's those reroll bubbles. Right. Right, right, right. So uh, even now, you've brought up two things I hadn't even considered, because I'm sitting here and I got a bunch of Achilles Ridge Runners and my Adelan Jackals. And, I mean, I have Aberrants um, and an Abominant, and, of course, I have a Patriarch and Gene Stealers, but... I had not necessarily considered using them 
together. That's, it's actually kind of brilliant, especially with the, because I was sitting here being like, I got the biophages because honestly he looked cool. Oh yeah. But. Great model. (laughs) I didn't know if I was actually going to be using him all that much. And so it, it really, that's cool. I'm going to, I'm going to keep that in mind. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Well, I think it's about time to delve into what I brought you here to talk. I appreciate you talking with me about the (laughs) Gene Steeler quote. (laughs) Uh, we we go at that for hours. Yeah, I could definitely pick your brain at it for hours. But let's get to some of this stuff here. So the three reciprocals uh, in the last section we had talked about. The first one is that war is violence uh, at its utmost and leads to extremes. The second one being that um, if your enemy is undefeated, that means that they can defeat you. And the third being that both sides are ever looking to increase the sum of available means and their spirit or their strength of will. So looking at the first one, this idea that war is violence and it always leads to an extreme. um, I know I've I've definitely seen this. When you talk about like the idea that everybody's trying to outdo one another, this is like the the meta, if you will, like the meta of fighting. How, How do we stay ahead of this? How is this something that we utilize to our benefit? The, I guess, uh, what what aspect are we trying to get? Are we trying to utilize, I guess, just the... Well, I would say, like, like you personally, how... Because, like, the meta changes, and, of course, that, that takes our techniques and makes them more or less effective. Uh, I guess, I guess to refine my question, how do you um, adjust your own personal style to the meta? What things are you looking for? How do we adapt to a changing meta? Um, yes. Gotcha. So the way that I fight, the way that I both like doing things like tabletops and and even in, and things like bell, um, I was a, I, I did kickboxing for six years um, in my teenage time uh, when I was a teenager as well. Is just I tend to want to understand the basics of what's going on and and then just kind of roll with it. Um, so for me, as um, as I learned to fight, um, I, I had two prime I had two prime people to kind of show me like how I can fight. One was Moses, and one was Dane. One was Par, um, and they have such incredibly different fighting styles, incredibly different uh, adapt, uh, adaptations to how their bodies work and how they move, and. I definitely found that listening to listening and letting my body do its own thing while having a uh, analytical and intellectual understanding of the the groundworks of everything has let me feel very adaptable to changing metas. Um, when we got started getting into things like the carbon cores, the hype pipes as they're colloquially called and such, you know, your carbon fiber spears and such. Um, we're uh, playing with carbon fiber, uh, you know, blues now and not feeling that something has to be a certain way because that is what I have grown up with or what the sport has grown up with, whatever the sport or game, what it may be, and saying this is how uh, it can be better or at least altered um, to make you know, X, asp- X, X aspect better um, has always been really fun for me anyway. And so I've just found it just as long as I can keep the basics and understand that, I'm happy to just play around with whatever's new. 
So if I, if I understand you correctly, when it comes to gear, you're ever looking for ways to improve the design, whether it be through the core or the type of foam, wrap, balancing, whatever. You're looking for the, the science, if you will, of, of the improvement there. But when it comes to fighting, it seems to be more of like an art, uh, like more in, intuition-based. A lot more of that for me, yeah. Um, one of my brother's pale is um, what he and Moses, or, or what uh, Parr, um, I think, very aptly calls flow fighters. Um, not as much mm -hmm. like doing, you know, Florentine, but flow is in they react and move how their body wants to and feels natural for them. And, they, and they're extremely effective um, that way, both of them. Um, I, I can't function quite like that. I still have to have a little bit more analytical to myself. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun for me to figure out, okay, like if, if the weapon, you know, weapon feels like this, or I'm using this kind of weapon or shield and whatnot, what is it that my body is capable of doing? And what do I feel like I can try to pull with this gear, this equipment, this setup? And, um, will work uh, if it's not just for the moment thing to try and like see okay how far can i push this how can i tweak it how can i um in some places perfect it sure and, and i'm sure that one of the driving forces behind that that uh, pursuit of perfection is that you're not in an isolated situation everybody else who's in the meta who's in the like the gear game if you will is constantly trying to improve their stuff too and so it absolutely behooves you to be researching that and trying to stay ahead of it because your opponent certainly is. Definitely, definitely. Um, I, I mean, I, I absolutely have followed trends um, in in the wake of in the wake of trends as well too. It was like, um, hell, the first weapon that I made was. Uh, Actually, Par saw it too. It was an abomination. Um, it was a really <laughs> awful, like fiberglass core and like the Walmart foam wrapped in uh, effectively ripstop, and it was um, just the worst thing in the world. Uh, and I remember uh, when the first real weapon that I got was uh, one of the barley bats, and oh boy, did I love that thing! That was amazing. Um, and if I still remember correctly, those barley bats were, they felt fantastic. And then we started looking at everyone else uh, started coming in and, and doing, um, you know, new weapons and such. Um, once barley stopped, uh, Forge Foam started um, coming up, uh, up in like a real, like a real big name and such. At that point, they started doing something different with their weapons. I wasn't particularly on the, on top of it at the time, but par got me some of those and those definitely helped me feel that i could do more and then um you know now all the all the crazy weapons that, that are out there for balance and weight and all that it just really allowed me and people who are far more flexible and gumby than myself do some just amazing things no i and i love it that's that's really the point of all of this both the art and the sciences uh you're kind of increasing your lethality towards the other person. You're not trying to go the other direction, obviously. Uh, we shouldn't be backstriding in terms of gear and functionality. But in the same token, like you say, we're, we're looking to outdo those other people, which brings me to our second reciprocal, which is that as long as our opponent remains undefeated, they might defeat us. And, uh, and so to kind of talk about this, um, Clausewitz is 
talking about disarming their opponent throughout this section. And disarming doesn't mean that you take their sword away from them necessarily. You can also do that. But it really means to take away the bite, to take away their ability to wage war or to continue the conflict towards you. Now, the Brotherhood is fairly efficient at doing this, but, but how about you give us a little bit of a rundown about disarming one's opponent, both maybe in individual combat and also in group situations? Uh, on the individual side, it, it um, <laughs> I rarely am, am out in, in a position where I need to be the linchpin, really. Um, I, I don't participate in a lot of tournaments and such, and so a lot of my experience comes from the bigger field fights at most, like 10-mans um, to, like, you know, realm battles, unit battles kind of stuff. And so it's definitely uh, a case where I've become... Uh, maybe overly fond of that leg em and leave them uh, <laughs> adage that we have. Um, I've developed uh, one or two really efficient um, leg drops. Uh, and for some reason, I think it's just my height and the way my body mechanics go. It's a very nice shot for me. It feels good. Uh, I can land them heavily and consistently. And then I'm dog balls at killing people on their legs. I'm just sure. absolutely terrible at it. So um, a lot of it, but I mean, but that's the thing is that like, I don't need to need to kill them because usually it's not down to me. It's down to us and an ability to do, take someone's most lethal components, which I believe honestly is the legs more than the arms. Yeah. They may have a weapon, but they can't come after you. Yeah. In this game. Sure. Like we got to fight it out, but if your opponent can't follow you, you ostensibly have most of the time won at that point. And so sure. letting, getting people into a height disadvantage, a mobility disadvantage, um, if you'll look at it, a wound slash limbs disadvantage, uh, you know, it's smart, but Lord knows the number of times that I've legged somebody or armed somebody and uh, either didn't know what to do or they just straight up outplayed me and I've just got gacked for it and you know they're the ones to live so uh you know like i i my own hubris and and uh has played me enough times to know that uh humility is definitely a big part of all of this and just because someone is down anything is disarmed uh physically does not necessarily mean that that as you say bite is gone Oh, right. Like you said, you've you've taken away their mobility and certainly an aspect of height, but their ability to continue doing damage to you is still absolutely there. And in terms of tall guys like us, they're actually in a far more lethal position <laughs> when they're down there. Yeah, so many hip wraps. Um, and, uh, in, a, in Brotherhood, really, we we do um, a lot of work uh, when we're you know, when we're field fighting to make sure that we don't. Um, that we don't work too far outside of the group and start working too much as individuals. Um, that's just how we like to fight. Um, I know if you look at it the way like EBF fights, it tends to be you grab smaller packs of, of individual, uh, smaller packs of, of people that go out and kind of roam with and come back as a collective unit to finish out, um, if they're given the opportunities at least. We tend to like to kind of herd people a bit, find them and isolate somebody that we know that we can, um, you know, bully or just straight out squish between somebody and then harry them into our front lines and then just kind of collapse. Um, 
and uh, real, at least for me, where I, I tend to be one of the flankers, uh, you know, myself, Ugar, Lilas, um, Dicky, that tend to go out and wide and really just kind of pushing people in, getting their flankers out, getting uh, backs where we can, sniping out the important people that are protected in the back really helps take away, you know, the larger field uh, bite. So you're trying to like... Basically, you're trying to make people play your game. You know that you guys are tight in a group and you work well with your, your shields and your pole arms and your archery all working in tandem together. And so those outside elements are trying to, like you say, herd people into a position where they're going to fight the way that you want to fight. Absolutely. I mean, control control wins everything, ultimately. Uh, I mean, from... from you know, the, the buffer sports to tabletop games to politics. It's, it control is everything. And if you can control what your opponent does, what they're forced to do, what they can't do, um, especially what they can't do, um, that's one of the things I really enjoy, actually, when i uh, playing with 40K, playing uh, Gene Sealer Cults and Tyranids, is that uh, they uh, don't tend to... I mean, they're, they're all just... They're all made of paper mache and raddits, but uh, the utility that they have through numbers and um, specializations allows them to tackle and have an answer to really everything. Um, and so if you can control and, and especially deny the aspects that your opponent really wants, uh, you're um, setting yourself up to a much, much better position to uh, to win whatever it is you're going for. Absolutely. And understanding these deficiencies, do you find that it takes at least a little bit of study to make it apply to an individual situation or are the tactics that you and your group use so broadly applicable that that study is not necessary? We adapt a lot. Um, we definitely adapt a lot. We, um, you know, we, we, we generally know how some mutants like to fight, um, and especially if we know we're going to square up against them, we will tend to just to move to to adjust. But I mean, I think it's I'm sure everyone really does this. It's, um, you know, you, you go in, even if you win the first one, you figure out like, OK, what went wrong? Uh, what went right? What do we do? What do we expect them to expect from us? And so how do we capitalize on that? Um, I mean, we, we, we constantly change tactics but again it kind of we we have the basics we know what the basics are and then we adjust to what that i mean in the moment that meta is so we take a lot of smart we take a lot of pride in being very um versatile very adaptable it seems like you're very good at adapting the situation to the way again the way that you want it like that control that you were talking about uh, there's only a certain amount of adaptability that is required when you are able to control the field, as as you were saying. So the adaptability being there, absolutely. Um, you know, studying one's opponent, studying one's own uh, drawbacks, and becoming more aware of how you can work within those parameters. Yeah, uh, that's smart. That's very smart. Yeah, because I, I we're all about study on this show, so definitely studying one's opponent is uh, an awesome thing. The last of these reciprocals that I that I wanted to discuss with you real quick is the idea that both sides are ever seeking to improve the sum of available means and the the strength of will. And so for us, that doesn't necessarily mean 
uh, like on the field of battle already. Like if we have already taken to the Belagarth field or if we have already set up our models, that's the fight. We've come into it with the sum of our available means and we have come into it with the strength of will that we bring to it. Uh, but in terms of going from battle to battle, event to an event, tournament to tournament, the idea of reinforcing one's available means is very important and probably one of the most important means that we have within a fighting sport is numbers, you know, is, is the blood coming in. How does the, the Brotherhood of the Falcon go about selecting new members? Like what is, what is the criteria? Because like you said, you, you have this very um, good system, this good system of kind of like working back and forth. And that requires kind of being on the same page in a lot of ways. So uh, like how does the Brotherhood seek to improve those available means? Uh, I do admittedly have very nominal involvement with this kind of stuff. Um, I have sponsored um, uh, twice now, um, and generally speaking, it it really comes in to it comes down to I should say um, how well do we fit, how well do we mesh. Um, we are a brotherhood. We are a unit. We are as close as we can try to make it. We try to be a family. Uh, and with that, we have to make sure that, you know, we can work together and, and be that in the end. Um, every, every group of more than two people have their own issues. Um, and, it, you know, you just address them as they come up and you work through them and you deal with them. Finding people that you find pleasurable to be around, but also ones that you can have, you know, serious and difficult conversations with, to be upfront with, um, and be able to have the sense of mind to understand that you are trying to come from, you know, a, a good place, uh, and, and that they should understand that you're trying to do the same thing. As long as we can find people that really can mesh into those uh, ideals. Um, we'll, you know, we'll we'll try to we'll try to do everything we can to get them and and to keep them. Um, so it just kind of really comes down to, uh, you know, you don't have to be the best fighter. Lord knows, most of us are not the be not the best fighters out there by any means. But uh, we take a lot of time to hang out with each other outside of practice when. COVID's not happening. Uh, and it really goes a long way to know that we can be good and close friends on the field and off the field. And it lets us really mesh together when we have to be serious. And when we find someone out there who's loose, um, that can get that with a couple of our people, then that just means that there's a good likelihood that we can find more that do and, and, that you know see if they're a good fit oh fair enough um i know the, you know the dark angels we do something similar there's a, a period of a basically of internship where you're kind of checking out the person and seeing if they mesh on the field mesh off the field and so yeah i mean that's i mean all all units do that at least in some degree i think but i know that uh the triad we have the triad are certainly very picky uh, about our individual <laughs> processes yeah um now, the other thing, of course, the big thing in the sum of available means is gear, um, weapons. And I know that it's a Dark Angel tradition that anybody who can 
brings all of their available gear to an event uh, in the off chance that somebody doesn't have it. Because the last thing you want is somebody who is a fairly good member of your team not being armed, whether it's because they flew from across country and weren't able to bring anything, or because they, uh, they broke, like they, they brought a weapon and it broke. Uh, we find that having that, that backup is a really uh, important thing. Uh, do, do you guys do anything like that? I'll get yelled at if I'm wrong, but not to my knowledge, we don't have anything like, we don't have anything like um, stated like, okay, this is a thing for us. Um, that said, um, Par, Hakan, uh, Ugar, Dicky, um, when I had them myself, Rem, um, er, almost everybody who has, actually everybody who has them available is always very willing and ready to give uh, um weapons out and such as needed to our brothers we've had some fly out from out east who just couldn't bring all of their stuff if any of their stuff and we have definitely outfitted them um it is something that that um i would love to discuss more of um now that i've kind of had other discussions with people like hakan who have had desires to kind of get a bank set up for doing that and so there are discussions about that but nothing official for it Okay. And I, I mean, I don't mean to imply that the Dark Angels have an official policy. <laughs> we don't really have official policies, but it's just kind of one of those unspoken uh, kind of things that we do. And and I, I noticed that it's something that the more successful units are like, I mean, it's nice to be able to. I know a lot of units that are just starting up, they might not have that much gear. But for those of us who have been in units that have been around for a while, who have more senior members, it's it's always nice to bring something extra. I know I try to. Uh, just to bring something for, for somebody to use. Um, yeah. Yeah. Outstanding. Well, real, we are, uh, out of, just about oh, wow. out of time here. And I am saddened by that fact because I feel like I've been very much enjoying our conversation and we could probably go on for quite a bit longer. Yeah. This went far <laughs> faster than I thought that was going to. Goodness. That felt 15 minutes. You know what? That's that's good though. I'd rather if you feel like it went by quickly <laughs> and you enjoyed yourself than like we were pulling teeth here for a half hour. It so. did not drag. <laughs> no. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. I know I really enjoyed having you on the show, and uh, I mean, if you'd like to come back, I'd love to have you on again. I would love to come back. I would love to continue this. Thank you very much. Uh, this was a really good opportunity, and I uh, thoroughly enjoyed this. Well, and thank you uh, again to yourself, Real. Uh, and now for the rest of us. We're going to move on to section three, where we talk about some revolutionary French reformers. For a final section here, we're going to be discussing some French revolutionary reforms and reformers. Now, I know that usually in this section we would be discussing battles and that sort of thing, but I have gotten overwhelmingly positive feedback about some of the deep dives we've been doing into this. So I thought that it would be a really good idea to give a very broad perspective of what was going on in the French army leading up to the wars that... Uh, Clausewitz would have been involved with. So all of this is taking place before our story with Clausewitz. But these military reformers were essential 
into transforming the army into what we would know as the nearly unstoppable army used by Napoleon to terrorize the continent. But in 1757, one year into the Seven Year War, the Battle of Rossbach revealed the true decline of the French army. Now that battle, we covered back that all the way back in episode 24. But it was a very important battle because again, the French army, which had been the envy of the continent, had really slipped into a shadow of its former self. It became a byword for indiscipline, incompetence, needless waste, and cowardice. There was one commander of the vanguard in the Battle of Rossbach that lost his gourd after the end of it. And he was you know, spouting off saying that, that I am in charge of a regiment of thieves and cowards. They'll run at the earliest site of battle and slit their commander's throat at the earliest opportunity. You know, this, the reviews of this army were not positive. So how did this army become the impressive military machine wielded by Napoleon. Well, we're going to discuss three reformers that were essential to modernizing the French army. And now, France, it's your turn. I've been mispronouncing names from all over the world, and now we come to you. I'm going to give it my best. I was able to speak French well enough in Paris to get around and be understood. And while I hope they appreciated my effort to communicate in their language, I also think that they probably winced at my, uh, we'll say accent. Let's go with that. <laughs> so let's talk about our first guy here. Jean-Baptiste Vaquette, Comte de Gribouval. And he lived from seven. 1815 to 1789. Now in 1757 at the Battle of Rossbach, he was a lieutenant colonel who was working with the Austrians at the time. And this was at the outbreak of the Seven Years' War. And so he was basically seconded there. And he was helping to establish their sapper corps. Now sappers, this is a cool word. I like the word, but let's get down and define it. It is uh, basically combat engineers. Their jobs are to breach fortifications, set demolition charges, they build bridges, they operate field defenses, they do road construction and repair, all the stuff that makes fighting possible in terms of the field itself, that would be sappers. And so from this position, he had a very, very good vantage to observe the effectiveness of this Prussian artillery that we've, it was very impressive, as we've discussed before. And... It wasn't just that he was there to see it. That was absolutely important. It, it certainly contributed to his ability to rationalize and bring that back, but more so that he understood it, that he was in a position and had a knowledge base as a sapper to really understand and appreciate what Frederick and the Prussian army were doing with their artillery. So he brings this back when he comes back to France. And what he did started basically everything that we know now in terms of war. Because at this time, weapons were being produced by any old blacksmith that could do it. They had all sorts of different calibers, all sorts of different barrel grooves. Uh, it was just kind of haphazard all over the place. So one of the things he did was standardize. 
every cannon will have this sort of firing power. Every rifle is going to be made this way. All bayonets are going to be made the same way. The standardization made it so not only it was easier to reload and, and make sure that, you know, everybody was kind of firing in the same direction with the ammo they needed, but it, again, it also smoothed all of that out. Instead of needing a bunch of different types of cannonballs, you only just needed one or two based on the two cannons that you'd have. Instead of having to carry a bunch of different types of ammo, just the one type. And this makes it easier, easier to resupply, makes it easier to uh, get what you need back in case you run out or it breaks or whatever. And in terms of breaking, he also started the use of interchangeable parts. Again, this is something we take for granted now. You know, something's broke, we go in and we fix the problem or replace the part that's broken and the machine runs fine again. That wasn't really common up until this point, especially when it came to military science. The cannon was the cannon. And if it failed, if any part of it failed, whether it was the wheel or the firing mechanism or whatever the case may be, that cannon was done. There were no other parts to replace it. You have to just get a whole new cannon. And so what he did was make sure that there were ways to repair things and to get fresh parts in there. And that kept the military machine functioning so much better because instead of having to replenish these things constantly, all they did was have to repair them, which is so much more efficient. Oh my gosh, so much more efficient. And then of course, through all of this, through these designs, he worked to improve the accuracy of the cannon as well. So they're standardized. You've got, everybody's using the same cannon and it has been honed to be very accurate. Oh, that's awesome. And then of course, there's the idea of greater mobility, being able to transport the cannons from one place to another um, quickly. That was a lot of what he was working on as well. In fact, this entire series of reforms is actually kind of named after him. He didn't, he didn't necessarily put them all into practice, but the, the, he, his name is kind of stamped on all this. He's very famous for what we were just talking about. Now, these advancements also had far-reaching consequences that weren't necessarily positive. The first one is that more horses and wagons are required, especially for an artillery-heavy army, right? You gotta be able to transport that stuff. And of course, with more horses comes more things that you have to feed. And with wagons, more interchangeable parts that are necessary. So uh, this, of course, makes longer columns as, this, uh, as people are trying to incorporate all of this extra transport. Longer columns means that one needs to have more light troops in order to protect those long columns because it's not useful to have artillery if it's just right there waiting to be snatched. We want to protect our artillery. So uh, light troops are more required and all of this results in greater expense. And the state can't necessarily keep up with all this. There's a reason that certain groups that went against the larger continental powers in this time didn't necessarily rely on artillery because of this expense, because of the upkeep that is required. So while this system was fantastic, while it, it absolutely contributed to the army that Napoleon would run, it didn't do Prussia must, or um, France much good at the time. The second guy we're going to take a look at is Victor Francois de Broglie, and he lived from 1718 till 1804. 
Now, he was involved in the wars of Austrian secession and the Seven Years' War. He got to see all of this. And he started to experiment with more flexible troop formations. Instead of just the, the long column that then transforms into a line of battle and marches forward, and you might have cav on the wings, but it's all just basically one big thing, he was looking at ways to move faster, to be able to take more advantage of the battlefield. And, and so speed and mobility were the focuses of the reforms that he wanted to put into place. So one of the things he does for this is he breaks the army down into multiple divisions rather than just the one large division. Each division, they're not like wings. Each division is going to have their own cavalry, their own foot troops, and those things are going to be reinforcing their own artillery. So basically taking all the components of an army and breaking them down into these, these different sections. And the idea here is that they're not, they're not operating alone. We're not just sending the one division out and making them go against the enemy army. That's, that's silly. Why would, <laughs> why would we do that? But the idea was if one division makes contact, if they go and they, and they encounter the enemy, their job is to then fix the opponent there and wait for other divisions to come up and either reinforce their position or flank the enemy. And so this gives greater initiative to the division commanders. A greater pressure is placed on them to be making good decisions. Obviously, the overall strategy and operations are dictated by the general or whoever's in charge. But the division commanders can actually make decisions on their own. And this is good and bad. Of course, if you have a good division commander who knows how to use their forces and you know has their head on right... That's fantastic. They're able to take it where it needs to be without waiting for cumbersome orders or remaneuvers or anything like that. They can just be right there. If you don't have good division commanders, if they are lazy or if they are cruel or if they, I don't know, if they're bad, I guess is <laughs> the point of it, then that also would affect it right here. So having a good officer base Making sure that the people who are in charge are competent is important. You know, we see this in the, the American Civil War, which I have studied quite a bit throughout my military career. And for the division commanders who were extremely effective, Stonewall Jackson, A.P. Hill, you know, these guys are, are still read about and they're recognized for their, their skill in maneuvering their divisions. Again, in that particular case, Lee would have been dictating the whole overall strategy, but those division commanders could operate as they want to. And then you have division commanders like Burnside. And those of us who have listened to the early episodes know all there is to know about my opinions of Burnside. But he's a good example of a division commander who, and, a, and an overall commander who wasn't worth his salt in this way. So greater initiative to the, the division commanders for good or for worse. This also meant that when they came to battle, there was a more rapid deployment from column to line of battle. Remember, you still needed that line, the massed infantry going forward, protected by cav, supported by artillery, still had to move into that line of battle. But it wasn't the whole army having to go through the process of moving to, to the line of battle. It's just that one group that has to do it. And that makes it so much faster. 
But all these reforms were too late to save France in the Seven Years' War. He had started them before that, but they hadn't quite taken place. They hadn't gone to root, and it, it wasn't enough to save France. The next guy we're going to talk about was very influenced, and his career was uh, dictated in some ways by Brugely. And his name was Jacques-Antoine Hippolyte Comte de Guibert. Guibert. Something like that. And he lived from 1743 till 1790. And he was, a, he was on the field of battle very young, kind of like Frederick. He accompanied his, fa his father, who was a chief of staff to Brugely, in the Seven Years' War. So you got to see all this stuff going down and all the weaknesses. And after the war, he uh, visits Frederick the Great. <laughs> He's a passionate admirer of Frederick the Great. And he goes there to view their drill. And he discussed questions with Frederick that Frederick was happy to talk with about him. And even though he admired Frederick and what his army had accomplished, he did observe some weaknesses in the army and in the strategy. You know, first off... It depended on making the enemy fight on his terms. Now, throughout his military career, that was pretty easy. He was able to outmaneuver his opponents, get them into the position that he wanted, that would be most beneficial for him, and then do the Frederick thing <laughs> and and whoop him. And so, but looking at this, you know, Giber is like, what if somebody didn't? What if they didn't fall for the trap? What if they reinforced their position properly? What if they played their time? You know, if Toto's wandering around me, if I'm in a small group and Toto is sitting there just outside of reach, tempting individuals to go out to fight him, that's folly. He wants to fight you one-on-one. -on -one. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to draw out individuals to fight him on his terms. Patience. Patience is called for in these situations, and so he sees this. He also sees a ragtag army of conscripts from every religion and country in Europe held together not by patriotism or personal loyalty, but by draconian discipline. Remember last episode when we were discussing the desertion rates and how Prussia had a ridiculously high desertion rate? Again, this is, this is part of the problem. You know, they didn't have a whole lot of patriotism or personal loyalty, personal oaths that were sworn. It was commanders beating the crap out of people that did it. I believe that we disagreed with that when we spoke about it before with, with Frederick's book, but we, I definitely disagree with it now because you can see, you can see the consequences of that. And this guy wrote some of the best essays and books on the subject. And, and this is what it was in a highly competitive environment. Leading up to the French Revolution, these subjects were being wildly discussed in, in various places, in homes, in coffee houses, uh, bars, all these different people were talking freely about this and they were writing papers. So the fact that his survived and was so instrumental speaks volumes. You know, it's like if the market is saturated with romance novels. And then one novel, one romance novel becomes like the hit. Everybody's reading it. That's a big deal. That's a big deal because, again, his ideas were more on the spot on this. And one of the things that he really dug in on was a purge of this over-officered command echelon that the French army had. Now, when we're talking about over-officered, it 
we're talking ridiculously over-officered. And the big reform that apparently you know, upset a lot of people was he required officers to actually be diligent in their duty. He actually wanted them to do their jobs, which is, that's weird, man. It's weird because we're talking about the French aristocracy in many cases, and they acquired their position for social reasons, either because it makes them look better as a match for a marriage, or if it's a matter of improving, like being like, oh yes, and I also command such and such, you know, some sort of bragging right thing. They got it for social reasons. They weren't necessarily interested in performing the duties associated with that rank. To give you an idea of the amount of bloat that was in this army, only 200 of the 1,132 colonels were permanently at their post or showed up regularly. 200. That's crazy. That's so many colonels. And then when we're talking about the total officers, 10,000 of the 35,000 total officers were either infrequent at their posts or absent entirely. That's a full third of the officer corps, not doing anything. And so when he comes in and he gets the, the okay from, from the king and from, uh, you know, Broly to start doing his reforms, he starts firing people like crazy. He retires six marshals. Now, marshals are a big deal. They're above general. He retires six of them. He retires five full generals, 359 brigadier generals, and several hundred colonels. Just wiped from the roster. Nope, you ain't doing your job, you're out of here. Now, again, this was necessary, not, like, when we're looking at these numbers, of course, massive bloat. But to put it in perspective, there were more generals commanding mainly ceremonial house troops than in the entire Prussian army. There were more generals in charge of fancy dress parties, basically, than Prussia had in its entire military machine. Which is crazy. They don't do anything. They're just sitting there being like, all right, cool, present swords and frilly, pompey things. All right, go back to the barracks and have some wine. You did good, boys. You did good. So, this was a good idea. In the long term, uh, it was a good idea but, I mean, at the, at the short term, it kind of weakened political ties. And this upset a lot of people. These nobles who were unjustly removed from their positions were kind of peeved about it. And there was a lot of other resentment going on at the time. There was political issues, religious issues. Again, we're, we're building up to the French Revolution here, so it wasn't exactly stable. But he becomes the target of all that resentment from the officer corps. It's all his fault, all of these things that are going wrong. And at one point... Brogely has to ask him to leave a base. He's like, dude, this is getting bad. There, I fear violence. Get on out. And so he, he was harassed and verbally abused for the majority of the rest of his career for doing something that really did make sense. And so through these different reforms, when we're looking at a, a more tight and disciplined, motivated officer corps, when we're looking at a artillery section or an artillery corps that can do some real damage and new formations that allowed this army to maneuver properly and quickly on the field of battle, these things contributed massively to the army that Napoleon would wield. Now, this wasn't 
an isolated event. It's not like France were the only ones seeking to improve. Remember our three reciprocals. Everybody else is trying to get better too. That's the whole point of this. Austria, for instance, was already working on this innovative approach to artillery. Remember, they had already been reinforced by this. Uh, they observed the artillery as well. And so they had their own savant who was working on this. They were also looking at ways to better use their light troops. So Austria was working in this direction too. And then according to Russian history, Russia was already using these sorts of tactics, these independent divisions that were uh, basically autonomous in what they were doing. And there's several battles where, where this seems to have taken place. Now they were on the periphery. That's part of the reason that they're not included in these main stories about it is because Russia has always been kind of like European, but not European, sort of. And in this case, it was, it was no different. So these reforms were huge. They would transform this decrepit, undisciplined, incompetent, wasteful, and cowardly army into a force to be reckoned with. A force that threatened, at one time, all of Europe. So, it's really cool. I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. We're going to be moving into... Again, some more relevant stuff, looking at how this was shaped. Because this revolution was very important. It was the whole reason why these other wars occurred. So, we're going to be moving through this. I, I hope this was informative for you. I definitely enjoyed uh, researching this. It was stuff that I didn't necessarily know before. So, this was a lot of fun. I look forward to having you all back for our next episode, which will be What is War? Part 2. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm -hmm.